Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, Colin. Always a pleasure to hear you lead us in worship. Alan, thank you for being with us today. That's a name I can remember, by the way. I get names mixed up from time to time, but I think I got yours down. So it is good to have you with us, and uh, I invite you to be taking your Bibles and finding Colossians. We are nearing the end of our study of this uh, letter of Paul. We are in the fourth chapter, and we'll be starting in verse 2 in just a few moments. There are several areas of the Christian life that we all understand and we all know that these areas are expected, indeed even commanded of us. It's not things that I I really have to teach or preach on because we are all in agreement on some of these things. There is no debate about them because they are very clear in Scripture, even if we don't actually do them for a variety of reasons. One of the areas I'm referring to is the area of prayer. Clearly commanded and even modeled in the Bible, and yet we still struggle with it. Knowing that we are supposed to do it, knowing that we need to do it, and yet oftentimes it just seems to slide by the wayside. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. And we are going to combine that with a second area of struggle that the vast majority of us deal with, and that is the area of evangelism. Evangelism is the spreading of the message of the Christian gospel, either through preaching, as I do, or through personal witness. And since most of you do not preach, we are going to be majoring on the personal witness side of the equation. That is actively encouraging you and I to share our faith with others who do not currently know Jesus with the view toward leading them to faith in Christ. I finished my sermon last week by talking about the fact that as we integrate our faith with our work life, not works as in Christian works, but our faith as in our Christian, our Christian faith along with our career or work life, it is time that we treat it as a missionary field, a mission field filled with people who are not converted and therefore need to hear the gospel. And I said then that I don't mean that you need to organize a Bible study by coming into work 30 minutes early. I did not mean by that that you have to carry a Bible with you everywhere you go in the office or the plant. But what I did mean by that is there are opportunities all around us, and since we spend a third of our day at work, there are plenty of opportunities at work for us to share the gospel. We do not have to go to Central Asia in order to find people who have not heard and need to hear and therefore need to be saved. There are lost people all around us. I know years ago we probably assumed that the vast majority of people in the southern United States are either saved or at least had heard the gospel And so there wasn't this urgency. There always should have been, but there wasn't this urgency of sharing the gospel because we just sort of assumed that everyone was saved. 
We can no longer make that assumption. It simply isn't true. And yet I'm equally convinced that the vast majority of us did not do much with that charge last week. And what I'm trying to say is I, I doubt very many of us changed our routine this week and actively tried to share the gospel at work or anywhere else for that matter. And so the question becomes, why not? If we know that there are many people who are lost, why didn't we strive to do something about it this week? If we really believe that Jesus is the only way to God, that he is the Messiah who sacrificed in our place, even as we've already sung about, if we understand and really believe all that, why didn't we make an effort this week to share that message with someone who desperately needs it? There are, of course, many answers to that question. Several of them, in all likelihood, center around the word fear. We are afraid that we don't know what to say. Afraid that we might say the wrong thing. Afraid that we might be looked down upon at work or thought of as weird or perhaps lose some of our credibility with our coworkers. Perhaps if we're honest, behind that fear is really some apathy, a cold heart, frankly, not really caring whether or not others come to faith in Christ outside of our small circle of close friends and family. Well, I don't want to talk this morning about what we did not do last week. I don't want to beat us up over, we've, over what we've not done in the past. Instead, what I want to do is talk about the future and how we can and should be evangelizing, be that at work or whatever circles that we run in. So my intent is not to beat you up. My intent is to encourage us to go out this week and beyond and share the gospel, understanding that when we are obedient to God, he empowers us to do the very things that he has commanded us to accomplish. So let's look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And we're going to take a quick course this morning that I've entitled Evangelism 101. Since school's starting back, we're going to take a class today. Now, if you know anything about college courses, you know that the 101 signifies that this is an entry-level course. This is freshman year stuff. And as a result, there is much more we could say about evangelism, but we're not going to. We are going to confine ourselves to this basic entry level that all of us can understand and all of us can apply. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Very simple outline this morning. We're going to start with step one, which we see in verses two through four, and that is our need to pray for evangelism. This reminds us immediately that this is not something that we can do on our own. 
which may be one of the reasons that we struggle with it. We tend to think that evangelism does depend on us, and that is why we have the excuses of, I don't know what to say, or I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. And yes, we are going to have to speak. We're going to see that in a few moments. But we need to be reminded that God is sovereign in all things, and that certainly includes the process of evangelism. So God is in control of our sharing of the gospel, and we can trust that he is going to use us in doing that. It also might help explain why all of this is so difficult. Because here are two things that we struggle with combined together. We struggle with prayer, knowing that we ought to do it, and yet struggling to accomplish it. And we certainly struggle with evangelism. And so when you combine these things, it's no wonder we struggle. But I will say this, I will promise you that if we are not praying for evangelism, then we are in all likelihood not participating in evangelism. These two things go together so closely that if we're not praying about it, I'm confident we're not participating in it. Now, Paul is clearly beginning the process of bringing this letter to a close. For some time now, we've been dealing with the internal working of this church in Colossae. We spent quite a bit of time talking about how there were false teachers who had infiltrated the church, and Paul is warning the believers that they need to stand up for and be on guard against those who would teach false doctrine. And then over the last few weeks, we've been looking at some household relationships, husband and wife, parent and child, and then last week we looked at the employer-employee relationship. But now we are going outside of the church, outside of the home, and we are turning our attention to our relationships with those outside of the church. Paul calls them outsiders here. And this has always been a struggle in Christian history, to find the proper balance between Christian fellowship within the body of Christ and community outreach outside the doors of the church. How much time should we spend with fellow believers versus time spent with non-believers? And as a result, at some points in history, we've been out of balance on either side. At some points in history, there's been this withdrawal from society. We saw it in the monasteries. The erroneous belief that in order to be righteous and avoid sin, We had to withdraw from society. We could not be contaminated by the world, and so we just denied that the world existed, and we tried to live outside of that world, and it didn't work. They discovered that the sin problem was in our heart. It wasn't just in the world, and so they still struggled with sin and struggled with living righteously. In our own day, we're probably outside of of the balance on the other extreme, The idea being that in order to win the world, in order to have an impact on the world, we have to invest in the world and ultimately become more and more like the world if they are going to listen to us. And the end result of this noble desire, it was a good desire. That is, it came from a heart of wanting to impact the world, but in becoming so much like the world, trying to impact them, we've lost our distinctiveness. And therefore, in many respects, the world is no longer paying attention nor listening to us because they see no transformation in our lives, no noticeable difference. 
And so we've got to find a way to find balance in being in the world, as the Bible says, but not of the world. A balance that is indeed difficult to achieve. You see, the danger for the Colossian Christians might just have been that in all of Paul's warnings about the false teachers, they were going to withdraw into their huddle and only associate with other believers and therefore no longer have an impact on the society around them. The danger for us might be that we become so comfortable with our Christian friends, so committed to fellowship within the body of Christ, which is a good thing, that we forget about intentionally reaching out beyond these circles that we tend to run in. This letter that Paul writes, as you may recall, begins with several items of prayer. Paul began in chapter 1 reminding them of his prayers for them. The third verse, he says, we always thank God when we pray for you. In the ninth verse of that same chapter, he says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And now he is turning the tables as he's coming to the close. And he is asking them to pray for him and specifically for his evangelistic efforts and by implication, their own evangelistic efforts. Look at the first phrase there in verse 2. In the ESV that I'm reading from, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Some of your translations may use the word devote. You can readily see that these words imply a busy engagement in something, persisting in it with regularity. This is not something we just give lip service to or something that we just hear on Sunday morning. This is something that we are to devote ourselves to. It means that we must make prayer a priority, sacrificing in order to participate in it, carving out the time in our lives in order to make prayer a reality for our Christian life. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes or cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Even as a tailor makes clothes, a cobbler mends shoes, so it is our responsibility to pray. And these prayers should be energetic. Uh, by that, I do not mean they are to be wild and crazy, but I mean they are to be alert and active. Be watchful in it, he says. That is the same word that Jesus uses. You remember the time when he is in the garden and he has gone away from the 12 and he has taken three with him and, and three times he says to them, watch and pray. That's the same word that we find here. Be alert in your prayers. It is the same word that Peter uses when he says, be vigilant for your adversary. The devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. So Paul is saying here that we are to be watchful, but not necessarily for any particular thing, but simply that our prayers should be spiritually awake and alert. And since this is something we often struggle with, I want to pause here and talk about some practical tips. This is not a detour from our passage of Scripture or from the sermon because again, if we are not energetic, if we are not alive and active in our prayer lives, then we are not going to be engaged in evangelism. So how can we be watchful in prayer? How can we continue steadfastly in an energetic, active, alert kind of way? 
Well, I think it starts with our attitude toward prayer. The attitude with which we bring, the attitude we come to something in prayer goes a long way in, in how we handle it. In fact, that's a general statement. The attitude that we bring to anything goes a long way in how we approach it. For example, if there is a ball game that I want to attend or watch, and I am tired prior to that game, I can immediately be re-energized when the game starts because I, I want to be there. I want to see this game. On the other hand, if my wife drags me to an opera, something I do not want to go to, and I might not be the least bit tired before I go, even though I'm not tired, my attitude in all likelihood will lead me to take a quick nap very early in the program because I really don't want to be there. For you, it might be the opposite, but that's just an example. The point being that the attitude that we bring to an event, in this case, prayer, goes a long way in determining whether or not we are alert or whether we are falling asleep. So we've got to have the right approach. We've got to have the right attitude. And Paul says that attitude is thankfulness. In fact, this idea of thanks is so prevalent in the book of Colossians that some people call it simply the letter of thanks. Being grateful to God for who he is and what he's done for us and thus expectant that God is going to continue to not only hear our prayers but to answer them according to his will will go a long way in keeping us alert. The same goes for our posture. You know, I'm sure you've said many times, I don't, I don't understand. As soon as I try to pray, and I mean well, I want to pray, but as soon as I start to pray, I start dozing off. And to that, I might ask you, well, what's your posture in prayer? Oh, well, I, I get in the bed and I get real comfortable and I, I prop myself up on a pillow. Well, it's no wonder you're falling asleep. Or I get in the recliner in my living room. That's where I like to have my prayer time. And I kick back the recliner and sure enough, very soon I'm dozing off. That's not a spiritual issue. That's a posture issue. You've got to sit up. You've got to kneel down. You've got to get in a position where your, your body is more likely to be alert and awake. I think another key to being watchful or alert in prayer is to know what we are praying about. For example, the, if we're praying for our missionaries, and this is the way many of us pray for our missionaries, Lord bless all the missionaries. That's not a very active and alert kind of thing. When we have no knowledge of who these people are or what they're doing or where they are, then there's very little energy that is going to be spent in praying for them. But if we know our specific missionaries and their specific requests, it's much easier to stay actively engaged. This is one of the reasons why Tracy and I just recently visited Central Asia and visited our team there so that we could see firsthand what, where they lived, who they worked with, how they ministered and what they were doing so that we could effectively and energetically pray for them. And of course, I realize that not everybody can make that trip and see those things firsthand, but we can read their emails, we can talk to them through FaceTime, we can keep up to date with their newsletters so that we know the specifics about what they're going through so that we can pray energetically and watchfully for them. And those are just a few things I could go on, but I want to move on to the spe specific request that is mentioned here, a request, a prayer for evangelism. Paul uses the imagery that we still use today, the idea of an open door. 
Now, I remind you that he is in prison while he's writing this, something that he tells us in verse 3 for the first time in this letter. And yet, while in prison, he is not primarily asking for his relief, though I have no doubt that they are praying for that. But his primary prayer concern is not that he would be released from prison, but that he would be evangelistically effective while even in prison. And in the book of, in the book of Philippians, he tells us that his imprisonment had gone out for the advancement of the gospel. That is, there have been others who are now more confident in their sharing of the faith because of what Paul has gone through. And in fact, that the guards that he is chained to on a regular basis have now heard the gospel, all because of his time in chains. So even in the midst of difficult circumstances, his priority is not his personal comfort, but his personal witness sharing the gospel with those he came in contact with. Now, as I said just a moment ago, we still use this open door imagery primarily to refer to opportunities. We're thankful that God has opened a door for our career, or he has opened a door for our schooling. Or we use that phrase when we try to encourage someone else, well, I just want you to remember that when God closes one door, he opens another and I'm not saying that those things are necessarily wrong. I'm simply saying that's not the way Paul uses it here. Notice what the, he says the door is open for. That God has opened to us a door for the word. It is the advancement of the gospel through evangelism that Paul has in mind here. It's not his career. It's not his release from prison. It is an opportunity for the word of God to be spoken boldly and clearly because Paul knows that it is the Word of God that God uses to transform lives. The others have conspired to close the doors, primarily by arresting Paul on trumped-up charges and putting him in prison. But even here, Paul sees this as an opportunity for God to use him to share the gospel. And speaking about the gospel, he calls it once again the mystery, which we've already talked about. We know that in the New Testament, the word mystery is a word that means something that has been previously hidden, but now has been revealed. So what is this mystery? Well, we might say the mystery is that the Gentiles are now co-heirs in the gospel message, that the gospel is not just for Israel, but it's for Gentiles as well. Or more specifically, Paul has already told us previously in this letter that the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or in another chapter, he simply says the mystery is Christ. Bottom line, Paul is asking them to pray for his evangelistic efforts, that he would speak clearly and consistently the message of the gospel. And likewise, we ought to pray for our missionaries and for preachers that they might be clear in sharing the gospel, none of which, by the way, negates our own responsibility to do the same thing, as we are going to see in a moment. And so we ought to be praying for opportunities. And that's a prayer request I'm confident that God will hear and answer. So I'm asking you, will you pray this week for the evangelistic efforts of this church? Will you pray this week for the evangelistic efforts of the team that we will see on video when we close this service? Will you pray this week for your own opportunities to share the gospel? 
All right, but that's just step one. Our syllabus goes further than this because merely by praying, and I really shouldn't use the word merely, but I'm just saying praying is not the only thing we need to do. We must combine prayer with action. And so in verse 5, we see that we must live for evangelism. Now, by calling it live for evangelism, I'm not using that phrase in the way that we often do. Like when we say, I live for sports, or I live for my career, or I live for my children. Of course, it would be a good thing to say in that way that we live for evangelism, but that's not the way I'm using the term. I'm using the phrase even as Paul does. He's using another metaphor when he says, walk in some manner, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That means live. That means conduct your life. And so I'm saying we ought to conduct our lives in a manner that is conducive for evangelism that makes evangelism a priority and where our lives match up with what we believe. In fact, to walk in wisdom could actually just be a summary phrase of this entire letter. And it certainly should be the goal of our life. As long as we understand that when we're talking about wisdom, we're talking about godly or biblical wisdom. Wisdom being the ability to take the knowledge of God that we have and apply it to the situations that we have in our lives, resulting in decisions and a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. And especially in this case here, it's to be done with a view toward those who are outside the church. Though earlier, of course, we've talked about how it applies to our relationships within the church, but here it is specific to those outside the church, the idea being that our lives must be a testimony to the transforming work of the gospel. Otherwise, when we do get the nerve to share the gospel, we will likely not be heard. It will fall on deaf ears because they do not see that it's made a difference in our own lives. And that is why it is so troubling that study after study concludes that there's little discernible difference between the way Christians think and act and the way unbelievers think and act. If the outsiders, as Paul calls them, can't see the difference that knowing Christ makes in our lives, then there is little, if any, reason for them to have any desire to respond to the message of Christ. Now, don't go to the other extreme and let this become yet another excuse for why you don't share the gospel. Well, I'm not perfect, and so I'm afraid that if I share with someone, they might point out some sin in my life, and then I will make it worse. None of us are perfect, and part of the message that we do share is that we are sinners, and Christ saves sinners just like us. Therefore, he can save sinners just like you. But the grace that saves us that we've sung about needs to be evident in our transformed life over time. Otherwise, it is cheap grace indeed. Paul then adds the phrase that we are to make the best use of our time. This phrase has been taken out of context by many who, who teach time management techniques. And there's nothing wrong with time management techniques there's nothing wrong with being efficient in your time, whether at work or at home or even in the church. But do we really think that Paul is sitting in a Roman prison worried about the time management techniques of the believers in Colossae? I don't think that's uppermost on his mind. 
No, the truth is that this phrase speaks to the urgency of the gospel message, not whether we perfectly utilize every minute of our day. There is certainly room in life for rest and relaxation. There are times when we ought to step away and revitalize and spiritually be re-energized so that we are effective for future service. But the truth is we don't know how long we have. We all know how the days are quickly going by. I can't tell you how many social media posts I've seen in the last week with, you know, how time is going by. Every parent posts that same thing when their, when their kid becomes a senior in high school. It was just yesterday that they started kindergarten, and here they are a senior in high school. So we know that time goes by quickly. We don't know how long the person who needs to hear the gospel has to hear the gospel. We don't know how long they're going to live. Furthermore, we don't know whether they're going to be receptive to the gospel in the future because it is true that people are more receptive at some times than they are at others to the message of the truth. Furthermore, we don't know when Christ will return. So all of this means we must seize the opportunities to share our faith when those opportunities become available. Many of us have had the experience of realizing that someone is open. They want to talk about the faith. And yet it's just not convenient for us. We've got other things on our agenda. We've got somewhere to go, somewhere to be, something to do. And so we nicely try to put them off for another day. And that is exactly what Paul is urging us to avoid. He's saying to us, when those opportunities arise, we must seize them. We must prioritize those gospel conversations when they are uh, at, our, uh, at our face. And we must set aside other things. And in so doing, we will demonstrate not only our love for the one we are sharing with, but we will demonstrate the priority of the gospel in our own lives because we are taking the time to share with them. So we need to live our lives in such a manner that not only is the gospel seen, but the gospel is prioritized. All right, we need to move on in our syllabus because there is a third point, and if we never make it to this third point, we've not evangelized. And that third point is we must speak for evangelism. You see, up until this point, you're probably with me. You understand that we need to pray for evangelism. We're not arguing that point. And in fact, you might be more than willing to do just that. Pray for me or pray for our missionaries that they will share the truth. You also understand that you must live in such a way as to not discredit the gospel, but instead to enhance it. But now when we come to this third point that you and I all have a responsibility to speak for evangelism, you say, well, I, I just don't know about that. I don't know that I can do that. And so this is where we stop short. This is where we cut off this sermon and we say, I'm willing to do everything prior to this, but I'm not sure about this last point. I'm not very good at telling someone about Jesus, so I'll just focus on showing them. And in fact, you might even try to spiritualize this with a quote that's gone around for a number of years now from a man by the name of St. Francis of Assisi, who reportedly said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. There are several problems with that quote. Number one, we have no real evidence that he actually said that. Number two, we do have evidence that he didn't live like that, which means St. Francis of Assisi did verbally proclaimed the gospel to the people he came in contact with in the city of Assisi. 
But thirdly, and most importantly, it's simply not biblical. We cannot just live the gospel. We must speak the gospel. Paul makes that very clear. How can anyone come to faith in Christ if they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? So living for evangelism and speaking for evangelism are not two different options and we can pick and choose which one we like. They are one and the same thing. They define evangelism. The Bible has much to say about the way we speak, the words we say, and certainly we need to hear that again. The harsh rhetoric and unkind tone that is normal now for online exchanges, yes, even on Christian websites and social media, is simply not biblical. And those who write and speak this way try to cover over their harshness by saying, yes, but we have to speak the truth. Yes, we have to call out sin. Yes, we have to confront people. But none of those legitimate ends give us the right to be hateful. Our text here says that our speech is to always be gracious. And again, this is speaking primarily of our conversations with those outside of the faith, though it certainly applies to those within. There is no doubt that the gospel message itself is offensive to people. I mean, the Bible says that. It is a stumbling block to people. They do not like the message that we have. They don't like it because it calls them a sinner. And they don't want to admit that they are sinners. Even if we say we're all sinners, they don't like to hear that. The gospel message is offensive because it says to those very same sinners, there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot atone for your own sins. And they don't like the idea that they can't try harder and be good enough of their own volition and of their own efforts. And so the very message we preach is offensive in many ways. But the point here is don't add to the offense, uh, the offensiveness of the message by the way we speak it. Instead, we are to be gracious and loving, warm and welcoming with our words. Salt is, a, is an imagery used in several occasions in the Bible. Jesus famously said of us that we are the salt of the earth. And here it says we are to be seasoned with salt. That is, our words are to be seasoned with salt. Salt, of course, is used for several things. It's a preservative. And that certainly would have been much more important in the culture to which Paul writes prior to refrigeration. But for us, salt is primarily used for taste. That is, we season our food with salt so that it has a better taste. And I think that's the way Paul's using it here. We are to season our words in such a way that they are better accepted, that they have a better taste. That is, that people hear them with the love in which we share them so that they are more likely, they are prone to be drawn to the gospel. We know, of course, that we cannot change hearts. It is only God that can do that. But he is using our words and our efforts to bring that about. So without a doubt, it is clearly biblical. I don't have to make this argument. You know it. It is clearly biblical that it's all of our responsibilities to evangelize. Yes, there are some people who are specifically gifted for that task and who can do it better than the most of us. But that does not negate every Christian's responsibility to evangelize. We know that. So the question then is, are we going to be obedient? Are we going to be faithful in this area of our life? Prior to COVID, we emphasized something that our previous 
SBC president was encouraging us to do, and that was something called Who's Your One? That was the idea was you were to find someone in your life, family, friend, coworker, whatever, someone in your life who needed the gospel, and that's your one. And you were to start praying for them and seeking opportunities to share the gospel with them. Unfortunately, when COVID hit, all of that sort of went on the back burner and we lived a different kind of life for all that time. So I'm bringing that back up this morning. Who's your one? Now, if you can't think of somebody, that just tells me that you are out of balance with this whole thing we've been talking about between Christian fellowship and community impact. That is, if you can't think of a single person in your life who you believe does not know the gospel message or hasn't responded to it, then you're probably just not involved in the community like you ought to be. So who's your one? Who are you going to begin praying for this week? Who are you going to begin trying to steer the conversation toward gospel messages? Who's that parent that you sit next to on the bleacher in practice week after week talking about whatever sport you're watching and you've never once tried to steer the gospel, steer the conversation to the gospel. I realize that's a little scary, but that's why prayer is such an integral part of this. It's also another way to exercise our faith. That is believing and trusting that where God leads, he's, he empowers us to obey. And I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is leading each of us to reach out to unbelievers with the gospel message. That much is abundantly clear in the Bible. The question is, are we going to step out in faith and obedience and see God work? In order to do that, we must be intentional. We must pray, we must live, we must speak. That is Evangelism 101. And this is not a graduate level course. It is something for every believer, young and old, new convert, or decades old of following Jesus Christ. The question is very simple. Will you join me in trying to reach that one who's in your life? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the fact that someone years ago shared the gospel with us. And we are sitting in this sanctuary this morning worshiping you because you transformed our heart through someone sharing the gospel with us. And I pray, now, I pray now that we would realize it's our responsibility to likewise share the gospel with those who we know. I pray that you would place that person on our minds. I, I pray that we would be burdened for them and that you then would give us opportunities to share with them, empowering us to do that when those opportunities arise. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, and you respond.